Hey everybody, welcome to episode 296 of the Morning Disco Podcast. My name is Tim Mitchell and I am in Toronto, Ontario. I'm joined once again by Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hello. And we have on the line from Seattle, Washington, the one and only, Jaime Lopez Jr. How's it going? <laughs> All right. So we'll start off this week with some fact check. Um, yeah, so uh, we were just, uh, we were talking last week about uh, road apples and I remember there was this, this two uh, machines, uh, the two, it was actually Macintosh 2VX and Macintosh 2V. I forgot back in the day they used to call them Macintosh 2s which meant they were color uh, they were 68030 processors and um, they were on they, I, I checked out the time I vaguely remember it was like eight months before they were cancelled but uh, they were on they were on for sale for about a year before they were replaced and back then they also had a look a lower end um, line of computers they, which they called Performa and then later on they had uh, they were followed up by the Quadra 650 and the Centra they had the Centra um, line which are again they were the same box, but just like they maybe had a slower processor or something like that. Um, the Quadra 650 became it had that same case that uh, became the 7100, which was Mark's Mark's favorite machine. Yeah, loathe he loved to hate back then. The Quadra was the high end one at the time, though, wasn't it? Yeah, well, Quadra was so you know, wasn't that one? Wasn't it the LC at the same time? As yeah, the LC and SC. There was an SC and an LC, and LC was like Apple denied it was low cost, but it was pretty much like a pizza box computer. It was very thin and. And small and didn't have a floating point unit. Yeah, I thought the I thought the Quadra was named that because it was a sixty-eight oh forty. Oh four, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. But it was replaced quickly. The, the Quadra six fifty was but, probably the the best machine that people had, and then it was replaced by this the PowerMax seventy one hundred. And I don't know if you remember, like it was sort of like the as controversial as going from Swift two to Swift three, or from Objective C to Swift. Going from the the old uh, Motorola processors, the O four Os and the O three Os to the power pc chip also meant uh, a rewrite of software right and and uh there was a lot of pushback from people about switching over to the new power max right even though they were better in the long run right yeah there was all that yellow box stuff remember that yellow box or was that later wasn't that there was red box and blue box and yellow box and yeah you know i vaguely remember was, that i wasn't i wasn't involved in development at that point in time i do remember those terms from bounced around yeah that was when os that was it when os 10 was first coming coming out so it, yeah it was talk it was all about how the classic Mac OS would, would run in emulator mode right, yeah. inside a, a container, what we'd call a container today. Right, uh, right. For, for that. Mm. Yeah, there's been a lot of, tra- like, you know, people talk about, it's, it's funny, I was reading something the other day about uh, somebody was trying to trying to poke Twitter to get a war going between iPad users and, and Mac users. And I'm thinking, dude, you have no idea. Like, it was Microsoft versus Mac. There was Quark versus InDesign. There was, like, you know, PowerPC versus non-PowerPC. There's all kinds of all kinds of uh, different you know divisions in the sand uh, throughout time, especially in, in just in Apple computing. Never mind Windows, right? So yeah, mm-hmm. interesting times. I'm guessing those were those must have been youngins, sweet summer child, completely unaware of the wars that have been uselessly waged before you. Yeah, yeah. I have no idea. Like iPad versus Mac looks like, and it's yeah, and of course you know the whole you just sort of say does it run Xcode? Okay, next question. Um, yeah, that's uh, my. Th- 
those uh, I'm a Mac, I'm a PC ads were pretty good though. Yeah, that was that was what yeah. somebody pointed out too. Is it was that that period of time too? It was Justin Long versus I've forgotten the other guy's name now. Ugh. Oh well, yeah, those were hilarious. I used to love those. All right, um, I mentioned last week that uh, Apple would uh, stop. I was changing my app over to use uh, uh, WK WebView WebKit views instead of UI WebView. I mentioned that Apple was going to stop. Sub- uh, I got warnings when I when I submitted my apps, and I, I just sort of randomly said that Apple would stop as of as, as, as of April 30th, 2020. They will no longer accept new submissions. We covered this on the show before, but and then the up, any updates to existing apps would have to be done by the, by the end of the year, by December 2020. So there's a correction to that uh, that thing that I was talking about. Um, yeah, we have some clairvoyant. Fu, and I don't know if we used precog or some other term before. Mm-hmm. So I apologize; didn't do my research. But what I am aware of is this blog post by Igor Coleman entitled "Determining Which Frameworks Use UI WebView." So if you're stuck in this situation, it uh, shows you how to do, um, you know, using the grep command line utility on macOS to find, you know, things that say UI WebView in your in your code. And if you're using third-party frameworks that you don't have the source code to, he also shows how you can use the nm command to get the symbols table. And oh, nice. Nice. Oh, good to so know. That was pretty cool. So yeah, that's pretty neat. It'll help you out if you're in that situation. Uh, yeah, I, I do know of a company, couple of companies that are in that situation. In fact, yes, interesting. Yeah, we found out that uh, Teams, you know, Microsoft Teams uses UI Web Views because we had uh, a situation where we could uh, reproduce an effect, uh, a defect using which loading loading a file up in Teams. Anyway, that's all I can say about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, and last bit of uh, or two more two more pieces of fact check. One was I mentioned we were talking about uh, vinyl records last week, and uh, Jaime was convinced that Nevermind had never actually been released on vinyl. In fact, it was released on vinyl in 1991, as well as CD and and other forms of release. Um, and I checked. Um, I didn't have don't have a link here for the for this, but uh, I thought perhaps what's the what's the story? Morning Glory by Oasis would also be in that same camp. And sure enough, it was also available on vinyl back in the day as well. Yeah, I was very clearly wrong about that. Um, I guess it wasn't uh, selling like hotcakes because it, it certainly didn't, you know, reach into my uh, my consciousness then. Um, the, the meta point was about. Um, I actually think it had started as a Star Trek Discovery sort of side channel of conversation, yeah. and about the use of holographic technology that didn't show up in so the original series from the sixties. Um, as it turns out, and I've not fact check this, but my understanding is that the animated series that came out around the same time with uh, Spock, Kirk, and company you know, from TOS, uh, the original series, uh, apparently the animators there tended to use more holographic technology. So, mm, right. sort of, I guess, in canon. I don't know. It's up to you. But the the point was about you know uh, future technology and and technology lasting, being used and and not being used when it could be available and better. And I round myself into the the contention that i had that like oh yeah never mind from nirvana didn't show up on, on vinyl right. um, until you know recent revivals but apparently i was wrong it, back in in for reals these times they did do that so i i actually lived through that time period that you just mentioned which is very favorable to me and that was uh that uh star trek the animated series was a saturday morning cartoon because i think um what 67 68 
was when um, Star Trek was canceled, and then about two or three years later, they brought out the animated series to satiate us folks who were looking forward to our Star Star Trek. Um, but it, interesting, I, know I was watching a couple of early episodes of, of uh, Star Trek, and, and we've talked about this on Spotcast. If we can just have a sidebar for a minute about um, Doctor Who, one of the things that one of the knocks against Doctor Who was back in the day they used to use a lot of in-camera video effects to um, to have like you know special effects and sort of show things that they would now do with CGI and, and that kind of stuff and practical effects today. But uh, in the early um, original series, they used to do a lot of video effects too to sort of like you know show uh, people show different situations and they would you know flip this the the that we talked about this as well on, on the, the Prince of Persia where they would flip the color um, gamut around to sort of create effects of like you know spatial storms and you know vortexes and so on and so forth all done with with in camera tricks back in the day back in the heavy heavy sci-fi days anyway uh, moving on so uh, we heard from our friend Marin Tordov uh, you know sometimes host of this show and uh, and uh, he mentioned uh, I mentioned him appearing on uh, Swift Paris or Swift Paddy as it should be pronounced but uh, he was telling me that it's actually a meetup it's not actually a conference um, and uh, this was the they started up I guess as a, as a reaction to COVID with an online meetup and uh, he was appearing on the third uh, third third week um, he, I think at the time he said they didn't do a fourth week but yeah so Swift Paris is actually a meetup or Swift Paddy is a meetup I'm not going to try and say that in French sorry <laughs> alright <laughs> let's move on to our Ask MTJC yeah this one is by uh, Way Down the Rabbit Hole at Harmonic Lattice who asks uh, would you agree that the trough of disillusionment happened sometime during the transition from Swift 2 to Swift 3 and includes a very handy link to the Wikipedia article on hype cycles. Oh, is Trust of Dissolution uh, as part of the hype cycle? Yeah, so you have the technology trigger and then a very, you know, you, know, you use your, your mind's eye because this is an audio media. You have a very rapid rise until so you get to the peak of inflated expectations. And then on this chart, you go down the roller coaster ride to the trough of disillusionment as people discover that, you know what, there is no such thing as a free lunch or a silver bullet. Pick your, your, your particular choice there. Then you have the slope of enlightenment and eventually the plateau of productivity. So looking at the trough of disillusionment for Swift, yeah, I, I do kind of feel like it kind of happened around that Swift 2 to Swift 3 cycle, right? Well, so that's people, when we had all the breaking changes. I'm doing air quotes, right? Yeah, those are the one that like <laughs> broke people's, you know, wills and, and sanity as they had come out of the, you know, inflated expectations. Like, oh, you know, we're, you know, we rewrote our entire app in Swift and it has like, you know, 30% fewer defects and then it's like, cool. Now this year you get to basically rewrite the whole thing again <laughs> as you have these wildly, uh, you know, unmatching changes of, you know, you can't just run from, from A to B. You can't just run the migrator. It's like the entire thing is broken. Fix it all at once. Yeah, sort, sort becomes sorted and sorted becomes sort. Yeah, and all that kind of fun stuff. And arrays yeah. are not arrays anymore and strings are now arrays and yeah. <laughs> yeah strings was nutty. Like it was amazing to me that for like a good year, year and a half, I had no clue how to get the actual, you know, get the seventh character out of this string. I don't know. Let me go look that up and see what compiles. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, you know, th- so this is referencing the, the hype cycle idea of, you know, my, my notion of like, this happens over like a 10 year cycle. I've seen a couple cycles, uh, the notion of different boosts happening as things change. And yeah, uh, at harmonic lattice, I definitely think that if I had to choose a time frame, it, it'd be that swift two to three change because that, that puts such fear in people's hearts that even today as you know, the, the swift three to four change wasn't that big a deal. It was almost nothing from four to five. And it's, you know, other than additive, it's, tr- uh, you know, trivial to move from like five to five, one, five, two, you know, and others to, you know, make sure that your code still works. And, and, and even to this day, I still see people on, uh, you know, Reddit or hacker news and other social media channels who are like, you know, they don't live and breathe it. Like people who listen to the show, are like, oh my gosh, like is Swift still changing every day? It's like, well, <laughs> no, it hasn't for a while, but I understand why you, you feel that way and why you're scared because it did go through that terrible, terrible uh, transition. Yeah. One to two was horrible and two to three was horrible. I guess by the time I got to three to four, it was kind of okay. Yeah. No, two to three was really horrible, but yeah, yeah. one, one went to 1.5 and then two, they, they were, you know, relatively good, but no, well, one to two is terrible because they, they changed just things like, yes, in Swift one, you had NS errors flying around. And then in Swift two, it was like, all oh, that's gone. So the signatures are gone. Try catch and try catch didn't work like try catch in other languages. And it was like, what's going on? <laughs> I remember one particularly painful and embarrassing day uh, when I was trying to quickly write something, write a, a quick little app in Swift, you know, when I was with a group uh, whose people were working on the back end and I was trying to do an app for it. And I couldn't get anything to work because I tried to use it in Swift too, kind of not realizing that one to two had just kind of happened and I wasn't paying attention. It was a very bad day. <laughs> very bad day. Yes, sir, Bob. Yep. All right. Well, we had a we had an email reply, actually, I guess a comment on our, our uh, posting here um, from um, a gentleman named Yoost, or spelled J-O-O-S-T, but pronounced Yoost, he says. Um, he's talking about how um, he said our discussion about the Xcode, uh, iPad on the Xcode, or Xcode on the iPad. Um, uh, I He said he commenting to me that I'd remarked that it would be a derivative of Xcode, not quite, you know, fully functional. Um, but his point is that um, he says, however, coding itself should probably should think of going away. I know the software industry has been saying this for years, but we've had a variety of tools that do kind of coding by drag and drop, nothing great. Um, at some point, we need to see, get serious about doing away with all this custom work and which coding really is and be busy about more general top level coding with some machine filling in the details. Um, if we could code more on simple devices, the coding in its entirety would be better, more simple to do without delivering simplistic applications, though. Just his two cents. What do you think about that? But getting rid of the coding part of development. I think we've talked about that before. Well, you know, it kind of depends on what coding becomes. A lot, of, a lot of people do coding by just taking this off-the-shelf library and this off-the-shelf library and gluing them together and just building something. And it works for some things, for simple stuff. But, but whenever you get into anything more complicated it's it's still really custom it's it's hard to see how that kind of stuff uh, could be done with drag and drop of off-the-shelf components to me, but who knows? Well, there is a lot of boilerplate, I suppose, in in in, in the sense of like way table tables are made, and um, uh, I think Swift oh, sure. UI and Combine are kind of kind of uh, simplifying that a lot too, right? So, mm-hmm. but yeah, like if you need to write an audio driver or you need to get into like the nitty gritties and you know down to the bit lo- bit level of something, it's it's a little difficult to do with drag and drop kind of coding. I think I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, it's hard. Like I've seen all kinds of 
apps and behind the scenes and you know digging into the code and um yeah some things would be really nice to be able to do like i, I do see like a lot of rep- repetitiveness but i think like like you know uh i'll talk about this a bit later in the show but when you're doing a t- like a table a table view or a table a collection like a list in in um swift ui and you're bringing combine in you don't you don't have to deal with a delegate and the you know the data source and all that kind of stuff and you know what happens in a cell and that kind of stuff you can you know using using like swift and combine are making that getting rid of a lot of that boilerplate coding that we have to do right so yeah for ui stuff sure sure yeah yeah but like when you get down to the, the, the machine level it's a little different 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 you still need to have some some uh, coding chops i think right yeah i think i think if i was to make a very stretched analogy i'm going to think of it as being similar to imagine you are building physical physical buildings and on the one hand you have something like you know a nice starter home whatever that means in your area you know it, it looks fairly similar to others that are in its uh, you know developed land plot block area and then on the other end of the spectrum you have the sydney opera house and i think for a very long time we've treated software development too much like everything needs to be the sydney opera house when really you could connect the off-the-shelf stuff together maybe you know customize a little bit you know it's got different colors and maybe this one has bay windows and this one doesn't but uh, largely the same gets gets the job done and i think that's how i interpret that question about you know moving more of development to hey using stuff off the shelf using you know different standard stuff and then really doing the super custom stuff like the sydney opera house that had to develop a whole new way to lay concrete i think to get the little like shell arch thing you don't need that for your starter home right but it's certainly appropriate to go fully custom for you know this one-off uh large revenue project do it will we ever get to the point where we have like a lego style coding like i guess we kind of sort of do now but like where we just have building blocks and we just slap them together right using your your concrete building analogy like i was looking at a video on habitat which was the building they built for expo 67 for the housing um and it was all done with with concrete blocks of various sizes and they just kind of threw them screw them together and stacked them on top of each other and made various different kinds of apartments out of it right so you know like like the, you build the pieces and you put them together as opposed to having to write that piece or, or rewrite rewrite how concrete is made like you said right that's kind yeah. of the analogy of of the heavy machine coding that mark and i were just talking about yeah and i think this comes out of the xcode on ipad speculation but if i were to guess xcode on ipad uh certainly on day one and and maybe forever will probably be towards creating the starter home type of stuff and if you truly needed the sydney opera house version of an app all right cool well you're going to need a macbook for that yeah yeah yep. yeah i made this prediction last week and i stand by it i think it's just going to be a souped up playground with some file management right yeah possibly yep. awesome. you know some org- some organization of files better than what playgrounds have right now mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. okay and this next piece is not really technically an ask mtjc but yeah i was playing around with my i mentioned last week that uh, i've got this ipad here and i should be able to plug a usb drive into it so i've got this uh it's actually the, i think it's part of the camera connection kit that i've got it's an, a lightning to usb it's just like a single you know usb a kind of connector um so i plugged a thumb drive into my ipad and i got this immediate you know ultra usb 3.0 this accessory requires too much power cannot use accessory error and so i posted on twitter asking if anybody else has given this a shot and um rasmus sten who's somebody i met on the way to um wwc i think 2011 uh it's what i was talking about you know meeting people from around the world i think he's somewhere netherlands i think uh, anyway he pointed out that he's using the uh he's got a, like an hdmi or sorry usb uh connector but it's got a pass-through power um 
my guess is he must be using a lightning connector here, but um, yeah, this is an iPad Pro he's got here. Same same um, vintage as mine. Um, so yeah, so he was saying that you know in order to, to plug in his USB, uh, in this case SSD drive, he has to have he has to supply power to the to the adapter to be able to be able to handle that. So or power to the to the, the drive itself to be able to drive the thing. Like you know you can plug a USB drive into a Mac and it'll take power from the USB port, but I guess the USB or lightning connector doesn't have any way of supplying power to uh, do things. But I think the new USB-based um, iPad Pros probably do have just a little bit of power to can supply to devices. So more follow-up for next week, I guess. But just a little bit of information on, um, on on that trick there, whether or not I could plug in a... I'll have to get a, a different adapter, I guess, to try this uh, this scenario. I was trying to, just trying to see to answer Mark's question last week about whether I could actually read files off a of USB onto my iPad. There you go. Yeah, it looks like Rasmus Steden is from Helsinki in Finland. Thank you. Yeah. Right. And I'm shocked given our Star Trek discussion, you didn't do like a Scotty impression. Well, I've given it all you cut. Or even given you all she's got, Captain. I cannot change the laws of physics. Kinda. 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 I don't even know if that's an actual quote, but it's a pastiche of, of quotes of Scotty stuff that I can think of. The truth, the truth is that James Duhan is actually Canadian. So there you go. There's your, your bubble burst. All right. So let's move on to a follow up. So for the first thing I've got here, and we've talked about this on the show many, 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 many times before, but uh, Mark Grimman on Bloomberg was being uh, interviewed and uh, he's uh, put together, there's a little video interview with him and uh, uh, a lady on the show uh, talking about how, um, of course, my Bloomberg has expired now, but yeah, basically that saying that um, uh, Apple is moving towards its own chips starting in 2021 is the prediction that they will start using these inside Macintoshes as well as they do now for the um, the ARM-based chips that they use in, in the iPads and iPhones and things like that. So predictions that maybe like the, the next iPad Air will have um, some kind of uh, uh, Apple-based chip or Apple-designed chip um, or ma- designed and manufactured, I guess. And uh, this is, uh, and of course, the question came up, what does that mean for Intel? Uh, I think Intel stock did take a bit of a dip. Not, I don't know if it's necessarily based on this news, but I think if Apple is moving away from, we're talking about moving away from uh, using Intel chips directly, that that's not going to help Intel's stock very much. What do you guys think about that? What do you think about it, Mark, specifically? I think it's, I think it's, it's cool. Uh, I think uh, this has been coming for a while now. You know, Apple's chips have been getting more and more sophisticated over time. So it'll be interesting to see whether it's still an ARM-based architecture, which it probably will be, because how much you know, there's not that much difference these days between like a, a MacBook Air and an iPad Pro, right? So, so they they probably could put an ARM chip in there. Um, you know, I, I can't see them using uh, one of these chips in the next generation of the fancy twenty thousand dollar Mac Pro, but uh, that's a whole different world. But for sure, for the low end ones, for the for the small laptops, makes complete sense. Uh, as far as Intel is concerned, yeah, you know, it'll it'll hurt them a little bit, but I, I wouldn't be so worried about Intel going out of business. They do plenty of other stuff other than make chips for Apple. It's true. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking about too about the iPad Pro or iPad line with when we start talking about things like Final Cut and and uh, Xcode coming to it is obviously the the fact that they can now have larger capacity devices uh, makes makes for because you're going to need disk space for or storage space for these kind of efforts as well, right? As we move in towards the heavier programming on on iPad, right? But but they're I mean they've already been using for some time now they've been using their own chips in the iPad. Oh, definitely, yeah, 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 yeah. This yeah. is for the Mac. Yeah, no, I know, and, and but I was talking about how, I was thinking about the fact that uh, uh, they have the space capacity on iPads as well. Like that was one of the things I was thinking about uh, earlier this week was was you know that's one of the challenges is going to be or potential challenge. Like I mean, one of the problems we have on on Macs is if you buy a Mac with 
too small an SSD drive really can't get any seriously get serious about development. And you know, Xcode takes a lot of space, you know, and File Cut takes up a lot of space when you're when you're building and rendering files, right? Because um, there's the other rumor about that what came out last week with with the Xcode to iPad is also that Final Cut's coming to iPad, you know, and uh, it does take a lot of lot of lot of space up for those kind of things. All right, um, Jaime, what do you got for us? This is rather minor in terms of things, but I think it was going to lead me into a, a public service announcement for folks. So the actual story is that the Apple support app has been revamped and includes dark mode. And I was going to ask the panel and people in general, like, uh, have you gotten your apps up to date for dark mode? You know, it's, it became available in iOS 13 and, and some apps have had a dark mode equivalent uh, prior to official dark mode uh, APIs being available, but kind of curious how folks are doing. Well, as you know, I did. Uh, I started working on, uh, I finished basically, I just haven't published it yet. Uh, device tracker has been set up for dark mode. Um, ironically, two of my other apps that I worked on already were dark mode because they were, they were, uh, black, black themed. Um, yeah, but I guess, I guess I could look at the other apps that I've got out there, see whether or not it'll be, but I'm, I'm staring right now at my Google uh, Safari browser running Google doc. And I, I notice it's a bright white screen and I'm being blinded by it. So I mentioned that last week too. Mm-hmm. What about you, yeah, Mark? I, well, most of my apps were pretty custom graphic design, so so to, it doesn't kind of doesn't make sense to make them dark mode because they all they all had their own color schemes. Uh, so I would say no. Right. How about you, Jaime? Yeah, that's definitely the the thing that has has come up. And, and on a personal level, I I tend to use dark mode. And I, I'm trying to think if there's anything I turn off dark mode for. Um, like twenty four seven your dark mode? Yeah, iPhone, iPad. Um, my Macs, uh, both work and and personal, like everything is in dark mode. I have been frustrated for I don't know if it's weeks or months. I don't know. Time time is a new thing nowadays. Um, you know, th- I use the Gmail app for iOS, and I've seen that other people have it, and they've had it, and it's been rolling out for however long time has been going on. And so I'm going to take a stab in the <clears throat> in the dark here and say, if you are a Google engineer who has access to do this, hit me up <laughs> and find a way to flip it on for me because oh, really? it feels like I'm in some sort of sick, twisted AV test to see, will this dark mode lover go insane if we don't give them dark mode? Like, Which app is this? Are you talking about? The Gmail app for iOS. The actual Gmail as opposed to Inbox? Right. right. And it's funny because a lot of, of other apps like Google Photos and maybe Maps and others have, have flipped on dark mode for me, but uh, Gmail was one of the first to hypothetically have availability. And for me specifically, it has not, even though I've seen evidence on the interwebs that it is oh, really? a dark mode dark mode media for everybody else. It's interesting. I'm just getting a spinner on the Gmail app. So yeah. I've also updated my websites too because uh, uh, most of some of my webs, I guess a large, large portion of my websites are WordPress and it's very simple to go in and create a dark mode theme for, for that because um, I did that earlier on um, in, in a lot of the apps that I, a lot of the websites I should say that I build, support, whatever. Um, it actually takes probably like half an hour to, to set up some themes for or some styles for, for dark mode. Um, but uh, I just you know from a, from a day to day point of view, I I run the uh, mode where your dark mode switches on at sunset. So during the day, I'm working you know in the old default style with the white white screens. Um, and uh, around uh, anyway, when sun, the sun goes down, my my Macs and my iPads and iOSs all switch over to dark mode. Yeah, I, I have mine on all the time. And you were talking about websites. I will give immense kudos to the fine folks at Stripe. So if you go to Stripe dot com slash docs 
slash API, right. uh, you'll notice that they have a little switch that lets you go from dark mode to daylight mode. Really? And it, it apparently figured out that I'm in dark mode because I didn't even know there was a switch until I started looking more closely and said, oh, this must be a white background for everybody else. Yeah, Twitter did that originally. They had uh, an all or nothing. They had they had dark mode. I think at one point they shipped with dark mode and, and I was taken aback because I hadn't quite got used to dark mode yet. But now they have it to honor the system setting, whatever your system setting is it'll it'll do that so during the day it's light and during the night it's dark so just easier to read it at, at night with the dark mode but it's taken me a while to get used to xcode and things like that in dark mode because the colors all change right so it fuses my little brain Alrighty. um this x piece here just came out today i just heard about this and i don't know if you guys have heard it yet but um apple confirms yet another problem with their notification uh apps uh i thought there's a specific talking about me- uh, messaging but it just affects everything um there is a series of, of characters you can send from, if you're running 13.4.1 on iOS, um, there's a certain set of characters in a language called Sinji, I think, or Cindy, um, that will, that can crash people's computers or crash their their uh, their phones. Um, there's a video here from Everything Apple Pro uh, that shows an example of it. Um, yeah, so, and Apple is currently, as we speak, uh, rushing out an emergency patch for iOS 13.4.2, uh, and I believe there's a Mac fix coming too, because I had heard something about it uh, being a problem on Apple on Macs as well. But I think I'm just reading here that it's just iOS. So yeah, potential flaw in the Mac iOS mail app, but it also affects other apps like uh, messages and things like that as well. I don't know if you guys have heard that at all. Well, let's put this in perspective. This is an article written by Gordon Kelly. Okay. So so you shouldn't take it very seriously. Okay. Everything he writes is, oh, Apple just screwed up and everything is, this is horrible. This is terrible. I mean, it's he does this every time. Does he? And yeah. And so the, the the mail one has been known for a while, mm-hmm. and Apple has pretty much confirmed that it's it's not really an issue. Mm-hmm. Although, yeah, it's theoretically possible that you could take this exploit and mix it with a couple of other exploits and maybe cause a problem. But there's no evidence that anyone's done this, and there's going to be fixed for it. all the same old stuff. It's it's you know bugs happen. The other one, okay, yeah, if you happen to type this crazy uh, uh, sequence of characters with with uh, you know the in a different language and with flags of Italy or whatever. Um, yeah, for some reason it crashes the app and, or crashes the phone. You have to restart, which sucks. Yeah, and people, you know... Well, we're just crashing people's phones. We're not trashing the phone or making it unusable. It's not trashing the phone. No, just crashing it. Right, right. So, yeah, these aren't great, but, you know, to give it the level of emergency that this article seems to is meh. Hmm. All right. <laughs> good to know. Sorry. <laughs> that's, no, it's okay. I just, I'm just reporting on the event, so, but it's good to, good to know. Yeah. I was yeah. asked to confirm if this was true or not, but now I know. Now I know. I have to look for this Gordon Kelly guy. And oh yeah, you've never noticed him before. Yeah, his articles are always like this. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. uh, clearly, isn't Forbes a sort of money market kind of uh, magazine? Isn't that their their sort of raison d'être? Like, yeah, they're a, they're a financial. Yeah. So you, know, you scare scare some stock people to dump their stocks and make, sure and yeah. profit, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Could be. Could be. All right. Yeah. I think the 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 nuance here is that these are factually true bugs it is the presentation of how severe is the situation right that is that is uh mark's contention here right and, exactly. I, and I agree with it yeah. too but like yeah. yeah it sucks i mean i looked up there's like 
40 some million people in the Sindh region of Pakistan. Uh, so that's rather unfortunate. I don't know what the sequence of character is. Please don't send them to me because I don't want my phone crashing. Real time follow up. Here we go. Yeah. At least it sounds like that's all it is, right? It's just a crash and not like it roots your system or bricks your phone or something. Right. It's an unfortunate series of events. All right. Um, so my, my nephew in England sent me this, uh, this particular story earlier today and I saw somebody ask, uh, I think our Dave Werner guy asked about this particular one, why the NHS would make this decision. But Mark, tell us what's going on with uh, the National Health Service in the UK. Well, we talked, we talked, uh, I think it was last week about how Apple and Google had worked together to come up with a plan for doing contact tracing Mm -hmm. or contact tracking uh, that was actually pretty clever and, and really had privacy first. And it was a decentralized system where everyone's phones would kind of keep track of uh, in an anonymized way, you know, what, what other phones they had come near and and uh, if someone had the found out that they were diagnosed with the virus they could they could post to a certain place saying they had it and people could check in and see if they had come in contact with that so it's kind of a good anonymous privacy secure way uh, of doing this uh, and uh, you know interestingly the the British national health system uh, has decided not to use that plan uh, it's it's not it's not so terrible though and they've got the, they've got their own plan uh, where they're using a they're using phones uh, uh, tracking just Bluetooth connections or Bluetooth connectivity nearby and and sending it up to a centralized server so they're keeping track keep track of it all in one place and sending out push notifications when when people have uh, you know have reason to believe that they've they've uh, been in contact with someone so there, there's trade-offs so it, it seems like there's a little bit more risk for privacy violations with this system and it's certainly going to be a little bit more uh, worse for your performance because I believe the app has to wake up the phone every time you come near someone, uh, wake up the app rather, and, and to make this network call and all that to report in. And having everything on a centralized server, you know, seems like it could be problematic, but they're claiming that it's not, and they're claiming that they've found ways around the performance issues. And and in fact, Apple in this article says that they're, you know, they're perfectly fine with that system. They just think their own system is better. So, uh, you know, maybe this isn't really that big news, but it is just kind of interesting that not everyone is quite on board with the system that Apple and Google are using. There was a couple of comments made about that in that tweet I was talking about earlier that um, people were guessing that perhaps the National Health Service can, I mean, maybe they're getting into market faster because I think Apple didn't come out with apps specifically. They came out with a framework, right? And I don't know if it's rolled mm-hmm. out yet. It's not rolling out till May. Maybe that's not enough time for the NHS. Maybe they want to get on this quicker. I mean, yeah, the so. the, NH, the uh, UK is on track, I think, to be the, the biggest... Uh, um, the, the, the severest hit place, kind of like New York is in in, um, in the U.S., you know. Um, it seems to be, like, of all the European um, countries, I heard today that they're, they have the most uh, severe cases and deaths and things like that, right? So maybe they, they, they feel they need to get on it quicker, right, than, than Apple's mm. and Google are providing, yeah. right? Possibly. Or they've already spent a bunch of money on it, not knowing that Apple is going to come up with one, and, you know, it's it's sunk cost, so they might as well use it. Well, we all know that this stuff doesn't happen overnight, right? Like, you don't... You don't 
right. come up with this kind of thing and then and then it hits the news and you, you worked on it yesterday. No, this has been going on for a couple of weeks, I'm sure, right? And they yeah. probably had committees and decisions and, you know, UX people designing this thing and, and you know, technology people coming up with the way of waking up the device to do this kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. For, for completeness, I'll note that I think France had requested that Apple and Google um, basically undo what was done for Bluetooth and the way it works with not running in the background all the time because they have their own particular app that they, I guess, have already developed or gotten very close and they want to have Apple and Google change things. And unsurprisingly, both platform providers said, no, you use our use our COVID-19 exposure notification tool that we're coming out with. And for more completeness, Germany, I believe, has said, yep, this is good. We're going to use what Apple and Google. Are yeah, I think, we, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about this, that there, I had read somewhere that there was some issue, I think, yeah, because Apple Apple wouldn't let third-party apps run uh, any other way than, than how they, they provided for everybody. I think that's with Bluetooth running, you know, behind the scenes, right? And not being able to jump into the, you know, not ha- not giving us, like, they, they Apple has, in particular, I don't know about Google, but Apple has their own sort of rules for, for doing that kind of stuff. But for the rest of us, we have to sort of comply with their, their wishes. And, it, and obviously, I, like I always say, they're protecting us from ourselves, right? In a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, um, Jaime, I'll let you introduce this next uh, controversial titled uh, article. Yeah, to keep our, what I assume is a PG rating, I don't recall, um, I'm going to retitle it as How Ni- How Not to Write Crappy Code, Intentional Conditions by... Um Actually, I don't know this individual's name. I didn't see it's Steve. It says at the top, just merely Steve, and no last name. But uh, Tewa.net is what we'll have in the the show notes for those of you driving at home. Uh, and he breaks down a, a a function that honestly looks pretty similar to some code that I've inherited, you know, in the past. Mm-hmm. And it starts out kind of complicated. I'm going to do my best to describe in in words what I can see here. So imagine you had a function that needs to save a person record and you might have some business rules around uh, you need to make sure that you know something has actually changed in this record before it gets saved uh, you need to make sure that the record is not built in you know some sort of artifice that already exists and, and should not be changed uh, and you also need to make sure that the user actually has permission to change the record so the horrifying if statement that I see let's see if I can even do it properly is if you don't have the record being as built in and in parenthesis as this big set of or statements if the record's first name equals the old record's first name or the record uh, if not the record's first name and if not the record's last name equals old record last name or you don't have the record company equaling the old record's company and then that uh or sorry or i missed one or record department not equaling the old record department and all of that that was in parentheses ended with user can actually change the record uh, uh, if you end up in that sad situation, you can't save. Otherwise, you can. And he breaks down different pieces that I think are... This looks like a lot like the kind of advice I would give folks in code reviews and in pull requests. Right? I'm like, you know, help me out. I don't really understand what's happening here. Could you could you break it out into functions that are well-scoped and well-named so I can understand what's happening? So he's like, all right, well, uh, what if we break out the... Can you actually save this thing into a function? And uh, what if we break out, you know, what's happening with this? and that. And so by the tail end, and I think it's a good read, you know, this can save function that takes in a record and the old record checks to see, you know, is the record, you know, is it built in, right? So you turn that into a function. 
can the user actually change this record, right? Like, do they have permission to do so? And another function says, like, you know, are these values equal? Like, is it just silly to even try to ch- change and save with something that's not changed? And if you get through all of those, which to me, I, I'd probably change these to guard statements myself, then you actually can save. And that makes me a whole lot happier because it's easier to understand as you're reading through code and you're trying to, let's say, fix a bug. You're like, okay, it, it's not working under this scenario. What is happening? Uh, I, I probably have a good idea where it's having problems, right? Like if we made a mistake on checking whether the record is a built-in type or not, all right, well, I can check for that and, and drill into there. It also makes debugging a whole lot easier. Um, one of the intermediate steps he does is to separate out, you know, hey, what if you had a variable that takes the value of some of these Boolean comparisons you're making? And then we could see what that is, right? Instead of having to do debugger magic or uh, check each you know individual little parameter there, you can say, yeah, well, this is false and it should be true. So obviously it's the problems here in this area. Right. Thoughts, comments, as you, you looked at the various bits of code and how it modified from the rather unwieldy sets of if statements yeah. and parentheses. It makes sense. I, I, you know, I'm a big fan of making your code readable, even if it takes a few more characters. People sometimes forget that compilers are very good at taking out all the extra stuff you've put in and optimizing. And if you can make it easier to read by putting in... Like, I'm a, I'm a big fan of if I'm going to return... Say I have, say I have a, a a function that has to let's say it has to initialize uh, it creates it, it creates a new a new instance of something and returns it let's say so uh, a lot of people will just have return and then the the init method you know what I mean the 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 instantiation thing so return my object parentheses with parks and just return it right. well what's wrong with having a let my object equals this thing and then return that the advantage of that is you can always stick a breakpoint in there and and probe things and do interesting things. It's very readable. Whereas if you just return it directly, right. it's not always so easy to to debug or troubleshoot that kind of thing. It doesn't take much extra code and the compiler gets rid of it. So why not just do it? I think it's cleaner. Yeah, I do something similar with, you know, that final variable being, you know, results, final outcome, you know, whatever makes sense in the context of what I'm yeah. writing. Yeah. And then the return of that very thing. So I can just, I can even see, just see, is that thing there? And I don't have to do debugger magic or, oh, let me go modify the code or run uh, particular expressions in a debugger. It's like, well, I can just see what it is, right? Because it, it exactly. shows there in the, the captured watch state. Yep. Yeah. A lot of times people are just trying to be clever. You know, uh, I, I don't know if, yeah. if nobody ever sees your code, why but why bother being clever? You know? or, yeah. if it, or if you need to share it with somebody else, why why bother being clever? Try and be a little bit more explanatory about it. Self-documented code is our friend. Yeah. And I think the the whole idea here is, uh, despite the, the the very amusing uh, title, right, about how not to write crappy code, um, the the happier part is the subtitle, right? That is intentional conditions. So, right, what what is it you're intending to do? So the you know does the user have um, you know permissions? It's like, well, how are you checking that? You know, sometimes it comes from this weirdo, complicated structure. And I've I've lived in that world before. Believe me, where it's like, all right, how do we determine if this is a buyer or a seller? How do we determine if this is a driver or a passenger? How do we determine if this is a merchant or a shipper, right? Like it's, it, it almost always starts out nice and clean and then business reason to happen. And you're like, oh my gosh, this thing we thought was never, ever going to change was in, you know, in invariant condition. There will never, ever be a merchant who is also a shipper or a buyer who is also a seller. Oops. Well, it turns out, you know, product managers decided, yes, this is a good business opportunity. And 
now you've got this nuttiness and I get it. I get it. And I've seen some of these rather tortured if else statements like, well, okay. So if this is a driver, but they're also not a passenger, but if this is a shipper and maybe is a merchant, but maybe they could also be a buyer, you know, like it, it just blows my mind trying to figure out how can you make this if else statement even more complicated when you can, you can, you can shove the dust bunnies into, all right, is this person actually valid to make this sort of command happen? And then you can, you know, you might still have to, to deal with the nuttiness inside of that function, but at least we can look through the business logic and say, all right, what happens if this other scenario happens? Okay. Well, then it would have gone over here. Um, and we can understand and have stuff that isn't, oh no, it turns out that if the user was signed in as this, but then signed out and signed back into something else, we lose, you know, control of what's happening. And I've seen tons of bugs like that. If you're, you're trying to gate off of very, very shaky foundations of, of, you know, could this person read in a code review and understand this, this rather nutty, uh, bananas type of if else statement or switch statement or other. Yeah. Stack conditionals are, are, are always, always hard to sort of read the logic through. Right. Um, but it's kind of like you mentioned guard. I always think of guard as, are we there yet? No. Okay. Let's get out of here. Right. Um, guard guard is kind of an interesting convention to use in that sense, right? Yeah, and that would be, and I've said this on the show before, I'm an irrational fan of the guard statement in Swift. So I think I would change some of this final function to be, you know, guarding against that this is not a built-in record, guarding against that we actually can change the record, guarding against, you know, that I might actually move this to the front. Is this record the same as the old record? It doesn't really matter if it's a built-in record or you have permissions. If it hasn't changed, you're not going to change it, right? Um, yeah, at the very least, even though some of that is stylistic and and you know maybe becomes business logic quibbles at the very least i can see it because it's intentional now and we can have discussions and and meaningful discussions and maybe even debates about you know what should happen first should this be an if statement or guard statement whereas with the other thing you know it's pretty easy to look at that on a friday afternoon and say looks good to me plus one <laughs> go merge that sucker and we'll figure it out on monday right hey right. move fast and break things huh <laughs> <laughs> it's QA's problem now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. So that comes back to you to fix it. All right. What's next here? Next one is uh, apparently the latest iOS beta makes it easier to unlock an iPhone with Face ID when you're wearing a face mask. Nice. So it's not exactly like it sounds. It's not like it reduces security in terms of, you know, uh, being better, smarter at recognizing your face and, you know, with half of your face covered with a mask during this pandemic. It sounds like it is UI nicety so that you aren't stuck waiting for Face ID to decide that you don't have the appropriate face and then giving you the passphrase, passcode, long and piece of looks like it sort of shortcuts it and, and figures out, as I understand it, figures out that you're wearing a mask and says, all right, no, no point running the full face ID check here. Let's just shortcut this and immediately give them with a passphrase passcode prompt. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's, that's a problem I have is as I've been wearing a mask, like for the last month or and a half, um, when I go out to walk the dog and, you know, I have a, a, an August lock on my door and, you know, so as soon as I step out of the door, if I, if I, if my phone's locked itself, like in the two seconds it took me to get out the door, it's super frustrating to look down at the thing and wait for it to realize that I'm wearing a mask. Yeah, so I guess so. It's not it's not recognizing that I've got the me with a mask on. It's recognizing that I'm wearing a mask and it can't identify me. You can't find my nose, for instance, right? So it's just going to go right to to the uh, lock screen, cool, or to the passcode. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I, I'm kind of hoping that they'll add some sort of thing. Where, I mean, they I need to scan our retinas. Come on, we're, we're, it's like 2020 already, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, well, at the very least, you know, we've got the ability to unlock our MacBooks with our Apple Watch. Yeah. So I can unlock my Apple Watch using my phone. What if I were to, while I'm wearing my watch, unlock my phone? By the same token, though, with my watch, when I'm walking up to the house and I say, hey, followed by the word Siri, um, and I say unlock the door, uh, it'll tell me I need to unlock my phone before it'll let me do that right off the watch, right? Which is kind of frustrating, but <sighs> things that make... These are first world problems, Jaime, but yeah. Indeed. <laughs> but actually, I discovered, too, that the August Lock actually has a, an Apple Watch app, and I can, I can just tap on the uh, the little green icon to open my... Uh, to unlock my door, so without having to talk to Siri, that's kind of cool. But yeah, this this wearing a mask thing, I, I, you know, I don't see it going away anytime soon. I don't know about you guys, but but uh, here in the Great White North, Carol and I have been, you know, making masks for people. Free if anybody wants a mask, let us know. We're, we're right now, Carol's like, you know, people are saying, oh, you could make all kinds of money selling masks. She's, her point is, it's saving people's lives, so they're free. If you want a mask, hit us up, we'll get you a mask. Uh, but anyway, or, or... Do we have MTJC masks? We do. Where have you been, man? We've had them for weeks, you know? <laughs> I was trying to tactfully find a way to ask Tim oh, really? since I saw that he has some, but I was like, man, why is he holding out on the rest yeah, of us exactly. but that's okay you know <laughs> we'll just put it's part of the show now it's part of the show they're actually um uh inkjet uh iron-on transfers so to be honest with you they're a little hard to breathe through you can still i mean they're not completely airtight but uh but they do they do sort of like shellac the fabric so i'm thinking we'll, if we're going to make them we'll, we'll carol and i are ex-screen printers from way back when we'll we'll actually make uh, a set of screens if people are interested we'll we'll happily make some some mtjc fabric and carol will whip up whip you up masks you know it just let us know we'll, we'll definitely do it um for sure i'm definitely used to breathing through that sort of thing because some of my makeshift ones let me tell you um well i guess they're dirty so i need to wash these but uh, if i had it handy i would more accurately describe the red bandanas that are from the i believe 2009 bumbershoot festival here in the seattle area and sponsored by uh toyota if i'm not mistaken so there is all sorts of red i assume screen printed text all over it and yeah you know it's not ideal but i, I breathe through it just fine so here's and, the psa so so these are not medical masks like they're not meant to be worn by you know personal like by people in hospital situations but they are meant to protect other people from you breathing on them right and spewing your if you're suppose you get infected for whatever reason right it's meant to keep the the germs away from you but when you get back into the house you have to immediately take it off and put it into the wash because you shouldn't be wearing a mask more than once so i have multiple masks and mac and i every day take a fresh one out every morning and and as soon as i'm done with the walk i take them off without touching the mask and and uh take a new one the next day so like if you ask me for a mask you'll get two like basically that's kind of the way we're doing it carol and myself we've been we've made them for family and friends and people are asking us for customized ones now carol's working on some canada flag ones we've done some blue jay ones we've done like all the and this is you know for for her like the this is all scrap fabric she's you know jonathan on Spotcast has been you know he, she's been making him pajamas and, and boxer shorts for years so she's got all the marvel and star wars and star trek and all that kind of stuff so we've been making making uh, um branded masks for people um but yeah if we have to do any kind of customization it'll, it'll do a different story 
great. We actually did, um, a friend of mine asked us to build her, build her some um, a bridal masks using wedding fabric, which Carol has as well, right? So lots of fun, you know, kind of, I think I think that definitely wearing masks is going to be something that's going to be the new normal for people in, in North America, much like it is in Asia, you know. Um, over there, they don't think twice about it ever since SARS, you know, the first SARS. Um, so yeah, definitely. But that's, that's the PSA. Yeah, don't, don't expect that you wear these masks, you know, once and, or many times I should say, you know, you basically need to wash them. They just go in the wash like, you know, like a t-shirt or they're basically like t-shirt fabric kind of thing. Actually a little thicker than t-shirt fabric, but yeah, just make sure you wash them between wearing. That's what I've got. We've got a stack of bandanas, and I think these are dish towels normally, cool. and um, a little quarantine box to put them in there and then wash them, you know, do all sorts of stuff there. And, and you're totally right. Um, whatever protection it might give to you, the wearer, is like the in the movies when the guy gets shot and it turns out the big wad of cash he happened to keep near his heart stopped the bullet. <laughs> like It's that level of like, all right, if you get really lucky, sure. Um, but other Otherwise, it is done more as um, preventative from spreading in case I happen to be uh, infected and happen to be asymptomatic and I just don't even know and haven't isolated myself yet. So, yeah, just doing my part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... And it's, I get, I get that, you know, yeah, the economy is suffering and stuff like that, but you know what, this is, this is the new normal. And, you know, until, until we have a vaccine, there really can't be pussyfooting around this, this uh, situation, right? Soapbox off. Oh, wait, but wait, we have something else. Yes. If you thought we were done talking about pandemic stuff, this is actually more technical bend here in that uh, the aforementioned, uh, let's call it exposure notification API, because Apple and Google have changed from contact tracing, which isn't actually quite accurate with how it works. It's really about letting people know uh, and therefore notify them if they might have been exposed. Uh, so the exposure notification API is apparently available in the Xcode 11.5 beta uh, for you to start incorporating that API into apps. And the iOS 13.5, is that right? iOS 13.5 beta apparently includes the code to run said framework. Um, not not tried this out myself, but it is uh, it is out there as of this recording. And so uh, folks can, can try this it out and, and see how things work. Nice. It's pretty nifty. And, and the aforementioned, you know, uh, government agencies and uh, medical boards and bodies, presumably we'll start digging into this and hopefully get things out there rather soon. So wait, you said we can play with this now? That's my understanding. Like, I don't, I, I'm going to assume that you would still need to pass through uh, the Google Play and App Store review policies to actually get a for real Z app out there for distribution. I don't have a lot of detail that I, don't, I haven't seen if the app review guide lines have changed at all. Um, but according to this article, um, you, you'll be able to try it out with the betas. Well, I think that, that Matt Triple T Thompson, when we talked about this two weeks ago, he I think he must have gotten hold of, of said framework, or at least the headers, because he was looking, he was surmising how it worked based by looking at the headers, right? So, cool. And just, as I, I love these articles that we find in the, in the, the posts when we get on here, because uh, real-time follow-up, uh, there's a sidebar here article that says you can get Affinity Photo for 50% off right now. So if you're, if you're looking for something to do, and you're bored and you want to play around with some some artist material kind of stuff um, and, or Photoshop-y kind of things, Affinity uh, Photo, the fine people at Serif have made this available at 50% off at the present time. This is in the, the Verge article that we're uh, going to have a link in the show notes to. So run out there and, you know, get your masks and play, play some Affinity Photo time. All right. So let's uh, get to our picks here. Um, shall I go first, Jaime? I've got a couple. Sure. All right. So um, these both of these came to me f from Scott Gardner, uh, 
friend of the show and uh, former Ray Wonderlick Wendy, and he's also been an instructor at LinkedIn. He uh, was commenting on the combined framework, uh, sorry, combined documentation uh, that Apple has put out, and uh, he just noted for those of us who haven't been paying attention that uh, they, the fo- fine folks at Apple, have been updating this uh, this documentation as it's been going. And so he's posted a link here, uh, which I've picked up, um, talking about how the uh, combined framework, the, te- the people at Apple are doing a, a bang-up job of um, writing good docs and updating them and uh, having some good examples here on everything you want to know about fr- uh, combined, what we're afraid to ask. So yeah, check it out. Um, it's quite, you know, like I think we've talked about other Apple documentation. It kind of seems a little little thin sometimes. Um, this one is quite extensive in terms of its coverage of combined and its use with SwiftUI and other things. And this applies to, you know, iOS and macOS and Catalyst, tvOS and watchOS, of course. And let me just see, does it switch? No, this is just written in Swift. Oh, do. <laughs> and actually, oh, they do have, an, they do have that, uh, that uh, switch there to show what's changing between the different versions of um, Xcode. So they've got the, I, I guess it's just part of part of the new documentation altogether. I don't see any changes here myself, but you can switch over to see what's changed between various versions. But this is just talking about uh, 11, Xcode 11 to 11.5 beta 1, uh, and there's not been does, changes. Hmm? Does Combine even work in Objective-C? I've never even thought about I that. I don't think it does. Uh, no, yeah. said that. Well, I'm sure, well, I do remember I went to a talk at WWDC where they, it was a really long talk, and they talked about Combine in general, and then they talked about Combine working with, you know, if, when you want to roll your own kind of thing. And then they sh- then they showed the third part of the talk was how Combine works with SwiftUI, and it was like, well, hands down, that's the easiest way to deal with Combine because um, of all the built-in conventions that are they're within SwiftUI. But, uh, but yeah, you can use Combine with, with uh, any types of Swift. Um, I don't know. I guess you yeah, can. Yeah. It really depends on how Swifty the API is for Combine. Like there are, like the things that come to mind, and I'm not a Combine expert, like, you know, Swift structs can work in Objective-C until they start doing things that only Swift allows structs to do. Right, and Enums as yeah. well are much more mm-hmm. powerful in Swift. Yeah, it's basically going to boil down to like, if it's a structure in Enum that can actually do operations of some sort, it's definitely not going to be interoperable with Objective-C since those are expected to be just, you know, dumb data record holders. I'm going to see if I can find the video that I saw. at. Or the- According to Apple documentation, quote, the combined framework provides a declarative Swift API for processing values over time. Very explicit. I think it was the Swift, uh, what's the talk I'm looking at right now? Swift in practice, I think, was the one I went to. Oh, combined in practice. So combined in practice, I think, was the one that I went to. Not the not the uh, introduction to co- combine one. Yeah, pretty sure that, yeah, that was the one I went to. And that's the one they talked about, sort of the different ways, combine how it works in general, and then how it works with, with uh, um, Swift in general. And then they, they wrapped it up with how it works, how wonderful it works in, uh, in Swift UI. Alrighty. Uh, part two, this is again from Scott uh, Gardner. Um, he was supposed to talk at a conference um, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, over time, that conference, he was really excited about it. But over time, we, we found out that the conference was not going to be uh, an in-person thing. Um, so, But he continued to work on his talk. And his talk is basically on SwiftUI and Combine. Uh, and I believe it's called Combine All the Things. Uh, 
this link that I have here, I watched it the other day, went through the code. Uh, it's very straightforward. Um, interesting way of approaching a talk. Um, he started with a UI kit application and converted it to use uh, Combine um, and sort of in this sort of you know, model view, view model kind of thing that uh, we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks as well. Um, also, it's a table view app, so there was, you know, using lists and using uh, customized cells as well um, and how to basically use Combine uh, to change. In his example app, he was gra- he was going out to a URL, grabbing uh, content of, of grabbing um, gists from various uh, authors on on uh, GitHub. And uh, so the UI kit app did that. It had a sort of an Ajaxy kind of uh, search uh, thing that worked in there, uh, but then showing how to do that in Combine and uh, and quite good. It takes it was, the talk was supposed to be an hour, ended up being a little bit longer than an hour. But I think with pausing and whatever the video as you go through the code, you know, you're not going to spend too much time on this this uh, particular talk. But yeah, it's very insightful uh, walkthrough on how to use Swift with Combine. I, I learned a ton of things about uh, about using the two of them together. And that's I'll hand it over to Jaime. Yeah, the Try Swift series of conferences that are normally hosted in the United States, Japan, and India, maybe others, but those are the ones I can think of off the top of my head. You know, those aren't happening because of the pandemic. Uh, but what has happened is that this conference has gone uh, online and is a little bit different. So uh, Try Swift World, as, a, as it says on the tin here, a set of personal online workshops led by Swift developers around the world. Uh, each workshop is limited to 10 attendees and lasts for about an hour with built-in time for networking, brainstorming discussions, and etc. Uh, the current set of workshops, and there are what, like eight of them roughly, with folks you probably recognize like Erica Sadoon, Paul Hudson, and Daniel Steinberg, and others are available for various uh, topics like um, creating forms with Swift UI or understanding key paths, uh, getting your first steps in combine. Um, wow, it looks like these are filling up since I added this link in the notes. They're all on the waiting list, yeah. Yeah, a bunch of waiting lists. A couple, as of this writing, are still available, but um, it says that they'll be, you know, adding more over time. So Yeah, Sam Goodwin had mentioned he was going to do core, core data and Swift UI. I was looking forward to finding out what he was doing about that, but he just put out a teaser, and I see that his uh, his particular uh, talk is sold out. Join the waiting list. Yeah, and I'm a little confused because they show a list of instructors at the bottom that is a lot bigger than the number of workshops. So I wonder if there's still setting up more uh, to come. Yeah, that guy Marin's on this list. <laughs> There's a lot of names I recognize. Uh, Shy, uh, David Oaken. Uh, Ellen Shapiro, Designated Nerd. Marcin Krasinowski, Shy Masali, lots of people. Oh, TB, yeah. TDB, I know him too. And Mohammed Azam, he just did a talk on, uh, or he just did a book on um, uh, model view, view model with uh, SwiftUI as well, recently. Available at your fine online bookstores, wherever those are. Cool. When, so when, is there like an actual, con- these are workshops, right? But when is there a conference conference coming up? Do you know? I think it's going to be um, a series of online workshops. So I think they changed how this was going to work. I'm, I'm not aware. Maybe they'll change their mind. Certainly there are other conferences that have decided to just become the same as they would be, except, you know, hosted from your living room couch sort of thing. Um, I don't know. So uh, I'll definitely keep an eye out, see what they're they're saying on this website or on their uh, Twitter account. Interesting. Cool. Well, I guess that's it for yet another week. So, hey, hi, maybe people want to get in touch with you, where would they find you? I'm on Twitter as at Dev of the Hair. And Mark, if people want to get in touch with you? Mark R at Snapsoft.com. All right. My name is Tim Mitra. T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine is still the best way to get hold of me. So if you want to get, yeah. So until next time, we'll say bye-bye. Bye. This has been another episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. 
If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the apps, code, and news that we mentioned on the show. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. Please leave a comment on the website, and if you can, please write a review on iTunes. And please recommend us in your favorite podcatcher. All of these things help others find out about the show. We really appreciate your help with spreading the word. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. So use the hashtag AskMTJC. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at MTJC underscore podcast. Please consider supporting the show by pledging any amount on Patreon.com slash MTJC. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Do you guys still use Twitter as much as you used to? Uh, well, that depends. Are you talking about since I started working nine to five? I tend not to be on it all the time, like I might have been in the old days. But uh, I'm on it probably. You know, I think I think believe it or not, I'm probably on uh, Twitter, Facebook, and and LinkedIn probably more often than I should be. Right, but Twitter a lot. I go to Twitter a lot to find things for the show yeah. and, and follow up on funny things and humor and stuff like that. Right, so you two are the only people that I interact with regularly who use Twitter. Really. Often, yeah. I feel maybe other people do use it, but I just they don't talk about it all the time like you guys do. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're integrated into the you know cyberverse, the the metaverse, cyberspace, whatever we're calling. You know, cool kids are calling it nowadays. Well, yeah, Um, I work with a lot of younger people. They do a lot of TikTok and stuff like that. I guess I think so. Apparently, they ran our um, so we have um, our parliament. We we have sessions in parliament, and there's like three hundred members mm-hmm. and you know they, they basically sit on opposite sides of the house well actually it's not quite up op- it is set up like opposite sides of the house but there's actually three or four parties right so um, like the prime minister will sit on the liberals will sit on one side and then the progress the conservatives and the and the NDP and you know whatever the Green Party will sit on the other side and so like you know the you have somebody at the front of the house who's the speaker of the house and he'll he'll recognize such and such member from so and so right and then they'll have they'll get up and they'll start making their they'll talk to mr speaker they'll say mr speaker blah 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 blah. i think you know that this should be done this way blah 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 and all of his support like everybody on his side will sort of cheer him on and clap and you know whatever and yet at the same time on the opposite side all of the opposition members who disagree with this guy will just talk over him like the whole like the whole time so it's it's like a big shouting match really right i I don't know if the u.s is like that but it's kind of comical sometimes right and i'm just imagining how the hell are they they did it on Zoom this week, right? So they had a call the other day with like, you know, like, and Carol said it was like a tile of small little faces, like 300 faces on this one Zoom call, right? And um, and they're all, you know, like, can, I can't imagine how they would do the yelling over top of each other, you know, because I, I don't know if you noticed, but like when you're on Zoom and you have somebody talking and the other people won't want to just interject, they just start talking over top of each other and nobody can hear anything. I think it's funny to see Parliament kind of run try to run that way, I should say, right? The opposition wanted everybody to come into Parliament three times a week and risk their lives and their loved ones, you know, for the sake of this shouting match. (laughs) All right.
So how's it going otherwise? Zoom challenges. Yeah, it's, it's all right, I guess. I mean, it's, you know, constant wear and tear of being quarantined. Is, it's yeah. tough, just got to wait it out. Yeah, it does weigh on does weigh on you when you think about it sometimes, you know? Like, it's, it's some, in some ways, it's kind of like a vacation because you have to get up in the morning and commute. Well, mind you, you don't have to do that anyway, but you don't have to put pants on, Jaime. And is that your equivalent for you? And then, um, yeah, and it's just, but like, it's like, I was thinking today, I have not been any further than the block that I live on for the last, you know, month and a half, right? Like, yeah, Carol's gone, done all the shopping and she's, you know, gone off to various places in the car and stuff like that. But I literally, me, as far as I can walk the dog in 15 minutes is the furthest I've gone, right? Is that like that for you, Mark, too? Uh, yeah, I've, I've only left my house maybe three times in the past month. I typically go to the supermarket one day a week. Yeah. And other than that, I pretty much don't leave the house. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've gone a little further than you because the supermarket's further away. But uh, right, right. But it's not, you know, it's it's not more than a mile or two away. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of strange. It's kind of weird. It's weird because like you can't watch any live stuff that isn't somehow related to the virus, right? Like, yeah, you can watch you know pre-recorded stuff like Netflix and anything, but there's there's no sports. There's nothing. You know, if you removed all the COVID nineteen related stuff, there's there's nothing going on in the world right now. Wait, they're not right? showing the sport, the the Flyers versus the Bruins from 1973 on all of your TVs? Yeah, we, we do see that. And uh, I think it was the Mavericks versus the Heat from 2006 for the NBA that they were showing this weekend because that's all they've got. But yeah, like there's there's no like escape for for live stuff and that feels weird. Well, we, we went from like, like remember a couple of years ago, Rogers bought the, the rights to the to Hockey Night Canada. So they owned, so they basically had their, and, and because they were partnering with CBC, CBC has a contract where they still have to show the Saturday Night game so you'd have channel six would have a game channel seven would have a game because it's owned by by rogers and then we have two sports channels uh the sports network and um i don't know two two basic two channels that have that so and then like these random channels would be showing it so like you'd flip by on saturday night and you could you could pick from five or six different games right we went from that to like now they're all showing like you know gretzky and the la kings versus patrick waugh and the montreal Canadiens from like you know whenever right the 80 something or or like you know the all the sort of you know the the top plays of the month i, th- I thought that was comical the other day i saw top plays of the month there hasn't been a game played in a month and here they they put together this show right Are they showing old football games and stuff like that too and espn i think like i think this weekend i remember seeing the i don't know if it was like nfl playoffs greatest games or if it was like the marathon of super bowl um recaps that they show from super bowl one to uh are we on 50 54 55 yeah speaking of which have you seen that um there's a rugby caller from rugby sportscaster from the from the uk who's doing a couple of dogs at the dog park have you seen those those tweets or youtubes tiktoks i have not and this is an actual announcer announcing a non a non-sporting thing they're classic i'll have to yeah it's like you know a couple of kids with a soccer ball in the park or you know and and just he just randomly and he, he does it with this real sort of sarcastic over-the-top sports voice right and then you know talk and he and he throws in all the sort of sports you know analogies about you know this is the the height of the game and this is you know this is you know like oh here's this the, that famous play that you know is only tried once in a while and you know like, like totally over the top I'll have to find yeah some. he does that for all sorts of stuff I've seen yeah yeah of like pigeons yeah. in the in the park and yeah yeah it's crazy yeah, yeah. So I don't know if you, I'll find some links and during the show and post them to you it's wild um, 
it's something that got kind of popular on sports Twitter was, uh, so Taiwan has been doing w- very well during the pandemic and they have, uh, you know, baseball is pretty popular over there and they had, uh, started streaming uh, live. I don't know if it was on Twitter or if they were posting the link on Twitter, um, you know, these, these games and apparently it was popular enough that they had, uh, additional broadcasters on a, a separate channel or something that would do it in English because the English speaking world was desperate for sports and said, yep, I'm totally willing to stay up till three or four in the morning so I could start watching this baseball game for the Rakuten monkeys and whoever the other team was that uh, I couldn't remember. Right, right. I found, I found the guy. His name, his name is Nick Heath, the sports fan. I'm going to paste this into Slack so you can watch it. It's pretty funny. I mean, apparently New Zealand is doing pretty well. So I'm like, man, I'm going to start watching the All Blacks play on uh, some rugby because that's the closest I'm getting to football this year, it seems. Really? Well, they still, they think they're going to play football this year. They seem to still think that. Like NFL football? NFL, yeah. Yeah, I heard that they're they, going to do it without without sports or without fans, right? I thought that was baseball, wasn't it? Maybe football as well. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. The whole point of it was to make money by, I guess, well, they, I guess they can broadcast it, right? Yeah, football, football, it's mostly TV. Right, right. Uh, sales, yeah. So they can baseball, adver- advertise everybody. restaurants and, and services that you can't go to, right? So Well, that's true. Yeah. yeah. B- baseball was uh, talking about, MLB was saying, all right, well, um, they think they can do uh, three 10-team divisions split into West, Central, and East. And mm. then uh, they'd play in their home stadiums, but with no fans was the, the latest sort of grasping at straws way to save the season, it seemed. Oh, interesting. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, I remember seeing the divisions like, oh man, there's so many good teams in, in the Mariners division. <laughs> oh, did they announce divisions? No, no, this, this was just like the, like these, this has changed again because they, they were going to do a completely different alignment uh, just a couple weeks ago. Mm. But I remember looking like, oh man, all right, so we got like the Dodgers and um, somebody else ended up weird in the in divisions. I was like, oh, it's priority of the divisions kind of weak. No, not really. Because if you look at, you know, the West Coast, the East Coast and the Central Divisions area, it's like with 10 teams, you're going to have some heavy hitters no matter where you're at. Well, if it's 10 teams per in three divisions, that's still 30 teams. That's the same number of teams, right? They just rearranged the divisions, no? I'm not sure how it worked out. I assume that there were implications for the playoffs mm-hmm. um, and, and maybe a shortened playoffs of some sort. It wasn't really clear mm-hmm. how that was going to work. Um, but I know that the couple of weeks ago divisions, I was like, oh, so really it's only like the Royals and the Padres would have to worry about it. And we get rid of the Houston Astros. Like, oh, that's pretty good. That was a net positive for the Mariners. And this mm-hmm. new this new division layout for, for temporary reasons was going to be worse. I'm looking for uh, some kind of link on that. 